Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 100 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we're chatting with several EV and renewables enthusiasts about a number of topics, as today is the last episode of the season, and it's another roundtable. Before we start, I wanted to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. I started this about two years ago with uh, Simon Rowe, and I thought I'd put together a small number of episodes about electric cars, but since then it's grown a little bit each month, and I've expanded to include topics in the renewable space, and now I find myself at an amazing 100 episodes, quite a milestone. Unbelievable. Thank you to everyone who listens regularly, to everyone who dips in when there's a topic they're interested in, and most of all to my patrons who help to keep the whole thing going with their financial help. Thank you. Today we're holding round table number three. Links to the previous two round tables are in the show notes. And if you've listened to those episodes, you'll know that we have a number of specially invited guests who come on and lead the discussion on various topics of interest in the EV or renewable space. So let me start by introducing the members of this season's EV Musings Roundtable. Firstly, we have Stuart Reid, who's the head of Future Networks, at SSEN, Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks. What he doesn't know about low voltage network and EV grid integration isn't worth knowing. And that's a direct quote from former guest and friend of the podcast, Jill Noel. Hello, Stuart. That's a setup if I've ever heard one, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Uh, Secondly, we have uh, Jack Scarlett. You may have seen Jack on the Electroheads YouTube channel where he covers electric vehicle reviews and commentary, but he's been pushed very much to the forefront recently as the newest presenter on the Fully Charged show and the brand new head of automotive content there. I think that's right, Jack, isn't it? Yeah, spot on, mate. Thanks. Lovely intro. Welcome to the both of you. As with last season's roundtable, the format's quite simple. Each guest will lead a discussion on a specific EV or renewable topic. We all get to throw our two pence into the mix. And then when we're happy we've solved the world's problems, we'll move on to the next one. Today, we're discussing the following items. Uh, flexibility on public charge points. Should Tesla open their supercharging network to other marks? And I'll be talking about slow charging cars on fast chargers. Um, If we manage to get through those fairly quickly, I've got one or two other topics that we might throw into the mix, but we'll see how that goes. Um, I'd like to start with Stuart, if I may. Um, So Stuart, the floor is yours. Yeah, um, I suppose the first thing to get out there is I am an EV owner, so that's uh, worth worth knowing because uh, I think I think one of the things about uh, EVs is until you've actually had one, you don't really appreciate um, the, the pros, the cons, the challenges, and the the debate that needs to be had. So, so I'll get that out there. But um, my my day job, as you can imagine, you know, head of future networks, it, you know, it involves looking at you know, how networks are going to deal with um, decarbonisation in the future. So. Um, EVs are a, a, a massive part of that, and then um, you know we're, we've been working on on EV uh, related topics for over ten years now. We had um, projects like My Electric Avenue quite a few years back. You mentioned uh, Jill earlier on there; that was uh, one of the projects we worked on uh, with her. Um, and uh, you know we've been working with flexibility, energy storage, and all sorts of things. But it's really starting to come together now. We're starting to see some kind of real you know, sort of investment in infrastructure and so on. And you know, just by way of example, we've got. A forty-one million pound program of um, investment that's just been signed off by a regulator, which is putting um, network in place from Oxford to Orkney and Dundee to Dorset, um, all allowing for um, uh, different low-carbon technology um, investments. So, so it's really starting to happen and kick off, and and we're starting to get into some of the real detail as well about you know the, the, the kind of the, the implications of this as well. So we've, we've kicked off projects looking at. Um, uh, um, uh, disability and how uh, electric vehicles are going to be compatible or not compatible with uh, the needs of disabled um, drivers. So we're working with um, people at Connected Curb and Disabled Motoring UK on uh, projects looking at um, not just the, the, the challenges that uh, disabled drivers may have and but how to overcome them and also some of the opportunities, things like you know, vehicle to grid and allowing a, an electric car to keep the, uh, you know, the lights on in a vulnerable customer's home during a a power interruption, you know, could be immensely valuable, uh, you know, for, for someone that could uh, uh, particularly benefit from that sort of additional liability. So there's just so many opportunities associated with EVs. It's an unbelievably exciting area to be in. And um, the, the, the topic I wanted to talk about today was was one that um, quite comes up quite often, and that that's that's flexibility. I mentioned about the 
um, My Electric Avenue project we did a few years back, and that looked at flexibility in home charging. And, and you know, as an EV owner, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to be flexible in terms of when you're charging your home. If it's sitting in the dry overnight, you know, you can you know, move you move your charge period around to take advantage of low cost uh, energy and so on. And it's it's relatively straightforward. But when you're out in the road network, when you're you um, you know on on the journey, um, how does flexibility work in that scenario? And, and one one of the biggest challenges that we've got out there is that you know there's there's little doubt that. Uh, you know, when public charging is going in, one of the um, things that can add costs and also delay um, the establishment of public charging is the connection to the electrical network. And um, there's a limit to what you can do with that because, you know, these um, reinforcements that are done to the network require physical work. You know, so you're, you're digging up streets, you're laying cables, you have to get consents and all sorts of different things to get these things. And so there's no silver bullet that says you know you can have instantaneous upgrades on the network so there all there will always be a delay and there will always be a cost associated with getting that 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 connection but but one of the one of the points is the electrical network is a bit like the road network it's not always busy uh, but when we put in a new connection for a charge point we build a network that is suitable for the peak demand um, that you're going to get in that particular area but but you know just like the road network, there are options to kind of work flexibly. If you think about it, when the road network is full, we use junctions, we use traffic lights, we use different ways of controlling flow, and that's possible as well with electricity. You can control flow, but what would that mean? What that would mean would be for public charging. Would people be willing to accept flexibility in the way that they charge a car? So just to kind of put some kind of reality into this. You know, if you, you turn up at a charger now and it says it's a 100 kilowatt charger, you expect to be able to get 100 kilowatts up any time you plug in, subject to your, your, your charge car curve in your car. If you were willing to accept that on certain times of the day, that charger was no longer a 100 kilowatt charger, but was a 50 kilowatt charger, does that make it any less valuable to the traveler going from A to B? And I would, I would suggest it doesn't because there's the options there. What if on ZapMap in future or, or, or other um, uh, 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 platforms that are out there, you're able to see that actually there's a charger available in this area, but this particular point in time is limited to 25 kilowatts instead of the 70 or whatever that is normally set at. You know? Would that be a significant downside or is it a price worth paying in order to get more charging infrastructure out there and, and uh, to get it out quicker? So that, that that's really the challenge. Would we be willing to accept flexibility in our public charging? And what sort of things would you need to consider about that? And what sort of uh, pros and cons would there be to that, that sort of approach? So that, that that's the, the challenge. What do you think? Oh, now that is a fantastic um, question. I've got my own thoughts on that, but I'm going to open it to Jack to start with to see whether he's got any uh, any thoughts and comments. Certainly. Well, I think my, my first reaction to that is I would put myself through a lot of terrible things for there to be more chargers, first and foremost, because that's what we want and need desperately is just more places to plug in. Um, I think the point about sort of reducing the amount of power that's going through them by you know spreading it out across multiple chargers, that's, that's a pill I'd be willing to swallow, even if queuing up for one really rapid charger and then using it very quickly that somehow feels worse than plugging straight into a slightly slower one, but actually being plugged in from the get-go. There's just something about waiting for a charger that is just deeply unpleasant, isn't there? Yes, um, yeah, certainty, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think sort of clarity of information, more detail about what, what is available and what we can expect when we arrive at a charge point would be a pretty big life changer. Because as long as there's no nasty surprises, you're willing to, you're willing to tolerate minor inconvenience, aren't you? My initial reaction on that was, well, hang on, we we want faster chargers. We, you know, grid server rolling out the 350 kilowatt ones. It, it's going to be a backward step to sort of say, well, no, we're now going to limit them. But of course, the devil is in the details on this. Are we talking about, you know, th this fabled sort of four o'clock in the afternoon to seven o'clock in the evening where the demand is high on the grid? generally is that the kind of time when we might be dropping these down or will it be random or you know what, what how do we see that working Stuart? Yeah it, it, it's going to it's still not going to be random it's going to be forecastable because because each bit of the network has a very different demand profile if you've got 
you know, a lot of industry in one area, you might have a peak at a different time of day from a domestic area, you know. So, so these the, the typical things you hear about the network being full at particular times of day is at a national level, yeah. But at a local level, it can often be quite different. And 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 the kind of model I would I would I think I could live with would be, you know, if if for each area you had, let's say, this particular charge bay, um, you know, we expect it to be fully available from these times x x to y. And fifty percent available from you know um, Z to W or whatever. So so you've got that clarity in terms of how likely it is to be um, constrained at any particular point in time. And if you think about it, it's no different from having to predict when the bays are going to be full as well. You know, so so it's just a kind of extension of a challenge that you already have as an electric vehicle owner. Um, so does, does that does that make sense to you? It does. Uh, is this I, I think for me as a, a user, if I'm um, turfing up at a, a charger, obviously, as, as Jack said earlier on, we want the chargers to be, be available. We want more of uh, as many of them as we can. Now, if, if it also means I've then got to look and say, well, on this particular location or maybe these particular charges at this location, the charge will, will be reduced between these times. Mm-hmm. As long as we know that with a certain, with an amount of certainty and an amount of advance notice, I think people will be happy to sort of go along with that. It's you know turning up at one that you normally use that gets a, a good 150, 200 kilowatt charge, and then suddenly, oh, today just for no reason that we can really identify, we're now down to 45 or 50 kilowatts. I think people are going to push back against that. Yeah, if it becomes unpredictable and random, yeah, I, I could see the point there. Yeah, yeah. Because one one of the other scenarios of flexibility is that the the charge point provider installs energy storage alongside the charge point itself, and the battery is used to kind of smooth out these peaks and troughs. So the customer experience is is you know as good as it can be. They're getting full charging at all times, and and the battery is doing the hard work. But but. The, the downside of that is that's kind of a premium service. So, so I suppose another question is: Would you pay? Would you be willing to pay less if it was a flexible charger with that amount of um, uncertainty, um, uh, and pay more where you've got the certainty of uh, a battery backed up? And you know, scenario. And that is an interesting from a business model perspective for the, the charge point operators because they can then, um, you know, make clear decisions and have a clearer kind of return for the investment in the, the technology that provides that guarantee of, uh, of charging capacity. There's quite a lot in that when you start to think of, think it through. Yeah. It is, as I say, the, the devil is in the details with things like that. Um, I think personally, if you start to look at it from a, um, a cost point of view and say, yes, this is going to be the price for the full power charging, this is going to be the reduced price when we have constraints on the network, if people are aware of that in advance, you know, you may even get people to go, well, I might deliberately try and charge at times when the demand is high and the um, the actual charge rate is low because I want lower cost associated with it. So it gives people options and I think options are always good. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I suppose the thing, the thing that's in, in my mind is if you don't have these flexible options, then it's more than likely that that charger will not exist because you know the connection can't be upgraded in the time to allow it to be installed. So it may be there maybe one year earlier than it would have been other, or maybe two years earlier than it would have been otherwise. So I'm kind of thinking, well, what is there really to lose? As long as we can get some sort of model that doesn't result in people having such a bad experience that it starts to um, push back against the kind of uptake of electric vehicles. That that that's that's the kind of one thing in my mind that needs to be right, which is why I think it's a, a good discussion to have. Uh, completely, totally. Um, and what it does bring to mind is, let me see if I can get the name right. Have you heard of, Jack, have you heard of the FreeWire Boost um, charger units? I can't say that I have. Tell me about them. It's a, I believe it's an American company. BP Pulse, are. Um, they've got one installed at their headquarters. Uh, it's basically, I think it's like a 150 kilowatt charger, but it's got an inbuilt battery in it and you can actually plug it into what is effectively a seven kilowatt output. So it gives the power of a high power charger, mm. but the actual drain of the uh, from the grid 
is the equivalent of just a normal seven kilowatt uh, charger. So something like that, you know, if you start to roll those out, you get to the point where um, you can put those in a lot more places than you could because you don't then have to hit this issue that Stuart's been talking about of having to extend the grid capability and put in all the, you know, the future proofing. It becomes a lot easier to roll those out and they're a lot cheaper. That is a very fancy sounding piece of kit. And then presumably the battery pack charges from the grid during off-peak hours? It's constantly charging. Um, okay. And I, f- I I should have looked this up in advance. I forget what the actual size of the, the battery is, but you can do something like two or three full charges on a fairly big um, battery car before it actually runs down. But because it's constantly running in the background at seven kilowatts, then uh, yeah, you, you're constantly charging. You don't have these areas where it's not doing anything and then suddenly you get somebody coming in with a Taycan who wants you know 250 uh, kilowatts instantaneously so now it sounds like an elegant solution to me I'm sure there are logistical and cost challenges around those types of charges as well Mm -hmm. Um, but to answer Stuart's earlier question I I think I think people will be perfectly willing to pay slightly more for a charger that is guaranteed to give you that that maximum charge when you're in a rush and slightly less and wait slightly longer for for that same charger um, during its during its hours of of demand, where where the power is being shared across multiple units, but uh, again, I just think it boils down to transparency and availability of information. I think we just want to know what we're going to get when we show up to that charge point, and and uh, and there's room for improvement in that area. Stuart, on a, a related topic, um, you're aware, of course, that our friends at GridServe slash Electric Highway are upgrading the current motorway service area uh, units. Yes. Now, this is just me sort of asking a sort of a blue sky question. If they're going from, let's say, one or maybe two of the old um, DBT 50 kilowatt units, and suddenly they're putting in two or maybe three of the uh, ABB uh, 350 kilowatt units. Are we assuming that somebody's been in contact with people like yourselves to say, right, we need this extra power going in, or are they trying to sort of fudge the system a bit and put more power, more units in without really upgrading the underlying power that's going in there? Well, almost certainly that there will have been applications going in for for upgrading, but but it's it's actually it's an interesting piece because the very same topic we've just talked about their flexibility can can be applied at that local level as well. So you know if if you've got your your charge curve on your battery, and you've got three units, the probability of all these three units being sitting at maximum charge at all you know all the time is is low. So they have got options for some flexing within within installations, particularly the more charge points you have, the more kind of diversity there is and the more options they have for kind of thinking about flexibility on site. Um, but yeah, I would answer your question that more, more than certainly would have um, uh, applied for um, uh, upgrades to the uh, connections in the background. Yeah. Okay. All right. It just seems that they, I mean, they're going through at a hell of a rate of, of upgrading. I think they've done 62 of the 160 locations in the last whatever it is, five or six weeks, that seems to be a lot of upgrades needed to the power connections in a short period of time. Is is that feasible? Um, not, not all, all, you know, a lot of sites have capacity at them already. Um, you know, so it, it does really depend on what, what sort of initial size of connection they've actually put in. So, you know, there's some, you know, although there's, you know, quite a lot discussed about places where there are limitations on the network, there are plenty of places where there's not limitations. So, I dare say there'll, there'll be a mix of sites where they're having to upgrade, sites where they're maybe temporarily constraining their connection, um, and there'll be um, sites where they've got the capacity anyway. Yeah, and it'll be a, it'll be a mix of these. But they're across a whole of different network operators, so I, I wouldn't know myself. Okay, that's right. That's probably accounting for how they're um, trying or, or the actual rollout plan because you know they seem to be doing it in a fairly haphazard way but maybe it's related to some of those issues that you've Mm. been talking about about which places actually have the the capacity at the moment right um do we want to draw a line under that particular topic unless jack has anything else to say i think i am replete fantastic well take a deep breath because i'm going to hand over to you now and you're going to talk about a subject that's very close to a lot of people heart people's hearts apparently which is should Tesla open their supercharging network to other brands? 
Yes, this is a fairly spicy one. And as I'll get to at the end, it's highly topical based on a, a certain tweet from a certain someone less than 24 hours ago. So here we go. In my opinion, the single biggest advantage of Tesla ownership versus owning a non-Tesla EV is not the astonishing self-driving technology or unmatched long-range capabilities, but the supercharger network. Tesla's chargers are among the very best. They're fast, they're simple to use, they're well-maintained, they're abundant, and perhaps best of all, they're for Tesla use only. And this exclusivity means that as a Tesla driver, you hardly ever have to wait for a charge. In fact, I personally have never had to wait for a charge while in a Tesla. Now, outside of Tesla superchargers, it goes without saying that the UK charge network is still a bit lacking. It's improving remarkably fast. But for the time being, if you do drive a non-Tesla EV, it's a fact of life that you are going to have a handful of traumatic charger experiences from time to time. Just last week, I almost got into a fist fight with an Ionity Rapid Charger because I arrived with mere miles of juice left on my Renault Zoe press car, only to discover that the charger was so shiny and new that it actually hadn't been turned on yet. So my question for today is, should Tesla open its supercharger network out to other brands? As EVs surge in popularity, does it no longer make sense for such a big chunk of the UK's chargers to be limited to one brand? Now, on the one hand, and I think this would probably be my stance if I was a Tesla owner, Tesla got there first. It invested a fortune into cultivating the world's largest charging network at a time when most car makers hadn't even begun flirting with the idea of building an EV. And that foresight has put the company in a position of immense strength. So why on earth would they throw all of that away uh, and inconvenience their existing customers by making superchargers busier? just to help out a load of people who bought from rival companies. On the other hand, you might argue that sharing the supercharger network just makes sense, that it's absurd to force five people to queue for one BP pulse charger at a service station while a bank of perfectly good superchargers lie unused next door. And more to the point, you could argue that if Tesla is really for the cause, if it really is on a mission to kill off ICE and make this electric thing happen as quickly as possible, as Elon Musk often states, then the philanthropic thing to do is share the love, open out the network and make running an EV, any EV, as simple, painless and appealing a proposition as possible. Now, before I throw this out to the table, I should caveat this by saying that just a few hours before we began recording this, Elon Musk rather vaguely declared on Twitter that the supercharger network will open up to other brands later this year. Exactly how much weight to put behind an Elon tweet is a discussion for another day, but I'd love to hear your chap's thoughts on this issue. Contentious. <laughs> it is. Go on, Stuart. Well, if I were a Tesla owner, I'd have one answer, but I'm not a Tesla owner. So <laughs> I, I think opening up to me is the right thing to do. Um, you know, this, this whole journey is about net zero, about, you know, removing diesel burners from the from the roads. And, and you know, to not open up to me seems wrong. And uh, ironically, actually, the last time I charged at a public charging site was uh, Gretna Green two weeks ago. And, and the, the, there was a queue at the Tesla site and there was... Uh, two um, CCS units sitting next to it with nobody on them, which was quite interesting. <laughs> That's a rare <laughs> sight. I, I even took a photograph of it. It was <laughs> such a significant point. But um, I, I, I certainly would be on the view that the, the greater good uh, has got to be the, 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 the way to go with this. And, uh, and ultimately, so as how sustainable is a model where you have um, uh, charges that are dedicated to specific car manufacturers? You know, if you scale this up, Mm -hmm. How does that work? How much redundancy of charging infrastructures is that result in the UK? You know, and and so you, you know, thinking the long game, um, you know, it, it's just got to open up, surely. I've I've been trying to follow some of the conversations that have been going on on social media about this, and uh, as you say, it is very much split down the middle. There's all those people who have the Teslas who are going, no, there's going to be queues, we're not going to be able to get on. And then there's all those people who don't have it going, yes, you know, you need to open this up because if they're as good as you say, then, you know, why keep that for yourself? And as I said on the previous answer, the devil is in the details on this because 
you know, people are looking at this and going, well, does Elon mean that we're going to open up all of the charges on all of the network, on all of the continents and the countries to all EVs? Or is it a case of, well, we're going to open some units at some locations to some uh, brands? And until we know what the detail is underneath that, it's going to be very difficult to make a, a definitive answer um, about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I've got to say, personally, I subscribe to sort of the, the mantra that Elon Musk put out, which is, you know, the mission is to get internal combustion engines off the uh, off the road. If one of the ways to speed that up is to make some and or all of the supercharger network available to some and or all other EVs, then that has to be a good thing. But one of the things that a lot of Tesla owners come back at is, well, hang on, we are paying for the supercharger in the price of the car. Mm. It's, you know, it's more expensive because we've had to, to cover the cost of that. And I can see that to a certain extent. But is that true for the Model 3? I mean, it certainly was for the Model S and the Model X, and that's why they got free supercharging. Yeah. But with the Model 3, are they still paying for it? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. It's a it's it's such a fascinating position that Tesla have sort of landed themselves in by by going early, whereby now they have to sort of face this this moral dilemma of do they do they further the cause that the company is built around and in doing so, you know, it, it aggravate and inconvenience their existing customer base. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think you're absolutely right that it's a it, the devil is in the details and I I have no doubt that they'll ensure that they go about this in a way that um, maintains priority for Tesla customers and owners, whether that means that, you know, half of the superchargers at each location remain Tesla exclusive or simply that, you know, us non-Tesla drivers pay triple just to sort of encourage us to look elsewhere first and use the Tesla chargers if we really have to. Um, I know it's been confirmed in, in a sort of more official way that this is happening in Norway uh, next year, end of next year, I believe. So this tweet from Elon Musk yesterday is a bit of a revelation, and I'm inclined to take it with a small pinch of salt because you know there was there was a lot of fanfare about we're doing this in Norway late 2022, and for him to drop this bomb in a, actually a reply to someone else's tweet yesterday saying we're doing it everywhere this year. Um, yeah, we we just need to see we just need to see what that looks like in detail. I think I saw one particular tweet from obviously a Tesla owner, and she said, "You know, now let me rephrase what I was going to say. Traditionally, Tesla owners are of the um, the voice that these are the best cars in the world. And this tweet that came out from I forget who she, who she was, but she said, "No, it's the superchargers that make Tesla so good." So it's kind of subtly changed from it's the car that's good to it's the network that's good. And I'm, you know, I don't have an opinion one way or the other about which one of those is correct. But it's interesting how now that it looks like the supercharger, the the sanctity of the supercharger network might be broken. They're they're coming out in force to say, no, 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 it's the it's the network that makes Tesla what it is. And we need to keep it away from uh, from the riffraff, et cetera. So, uh, again, devil in the details. And I think this is one of those discussions that's going to go on and on and on. I am sort of inclined to, to agree with that statement. I, I, I think there's a lot of things that make Tesla's extremely special. But I think that the gap is closing faster to the cars versus the opposition. Whereas when it comes to the supercharger network versus the opposition, I think that gap is still fairly enormous. Um, and so that so that that one particular advantage of Tesla ownership is really beginning to stand out. Um, and yeah, it's something you have to consider. If you're going to buy a non-Tesla electric car, you sort of just need to make peace with the fact that um, it's it's going to be a little bit more logistically challenging. Yes. Yeah. Although with uh, the GridServe electric highway solution, I mean, they're, they're now coming up with uh, multiple hubs. They're coming up with the electric forecourts. They're obviously upgrading all the existing motorway service ones. They're also looking at auto charge, which is the plug and play. So, you know, from a functionality point of view, it is not that dissimilar to the supercharger network. The advantage that the supercharger network has, obviously, is there's a lot more of them at the moment. um, And they've got the, you know, the head start in the market. So, 
Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it affects um, uh, charge point installers' um, plans for installing new infrastructure. You know, if, if, if suddenly you've got 20 or 30 competing charge points sitting at a site you were going to develop already, you know, that, that, that's that's one maybe unintended consequence would be interesting to think about. You know, do you actually, um, by opening up the Tesla infrastructure, do you temporarily stifle in, uh, investment in other charging infrastructure um, as a thought. I don't that's know if really that's an issue or not, but uh, yeah. It, yes, no, Jack, you were saying that is an interesting point because my understanding is that the um, the location of a lot of the superchargers, uh, be, I mean, yes, each site has, I think, a minimum of four and anything up to about 64 different charges, depending on where you are in the world, but they've focused them in certain key areas uh, which are high traffic throughputs and things like that. I mean, everybody talks about Wales not having uh, any charger uh, infrastructure in the centre, and that's quite right. There are only two Tesla superchargers in Wales, one's down in Cardiff, the other one's up in Rill or Flandudno up on the, uh, the top coast. So, you know, even Tesla aren't going into a lot of these areas that are, you know, what I call the charger wastelands. Maybe uh, if we get the situation that Stuart's just talked about there, maybe a lot of the other uh, companies, instead of trying to compete with Tesla, they're go now going to focus a lot more on some of the areas that are lesser served by chargers at the moment. Which can be positive, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing, from, kind of from a network perspective, when it, whenever anyone installs charging infrastructure, they effectively reserve the capacity of the network. You know, so so you know that if you've got you know a megawatt's worth of chargers in a the street, then you know anyone else that comes along requires additional capacity over and above that. You know, so so from some perspective, it's quite wasteful having charging infrastructure sitting there doing nothing. That holding up capacity, you know, so so there's some good good aspects from that angle as well. Oh, that whole flexibility debate we had earlier on would fix that problem as well. It's kind of two ways of doing it there, which is interesting interaction between the two topics there. Oh, yeah, I do like that because are you effectively saying that it could be possible if we if we put that sort of flexibility in that your um, was it version three superchargers at 250 kilowatts might only come up to 100 kilowatts at certain times of the day. For certain locations, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, you're, what you're, you're doing with flexibility is making maximum use of what's available in that area at any point in time. You're, you're, you're kind of pushing the limits of what can be done in the system, rather than going for very the normal conservative type arrangements that are in place where you reserve capacity on the chance that you may use it. Mm. Okay, uh, Jack. One final question on this: Do you think that a lot of the um, pushback that the Tesla owners are getting is, uh, to me, it falls into two areas. One is, no, the superchargers are ours. You stay away. Bad people coming in and encroaching on our uh, area. <laughs> or is it a case of, we don't really care. What we don't want is queues at the supercharger. If you could guarantee that I can always charge, then I'm quite happy to open it up to anybody. Which which of those do you think is the sort of the one that's pushing more people um, who own a Tesla to be against this? Oh, you know, I'm going to tread carefully with my answer here, Gary, because I have a nasty reputation of accidentally sort of triggering the extremist Tesla fan base of the internet when I uh, when I speak on this these issues. Um, I, I think, oh, I, you know, I remember my favourite reaction to that question was my boss Robert Llewellyn's answer, who is a Tesla Model Three owner. When I asked him, and he sort of went, "Yeah, we should show them out," but his fists were clenched when he said it. <laughs> Um, I think, I think that we're probably through that phase. There was a real identity attached with Tesla ownership in the early years because they were the only ones and they were by miles the best. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was a certain, there was a certain pride attached with being part of that elite early adopters club. And I think that that is subsiding now uh, that, you know, the competition is is catching up and offering some properly good alternatives. And that's not to say that the shine has gone from Tesla. What you're left with is still an outstanding product, probably the best one in the mm -hmm. Model 3. Um, so, so my guess is that it's probably just about the fear of inconvenience. You know, well, I've paid for this thing under these certain pretenses, and I don't want you to now take that away from me when I'm one year into a three-year lease because this isn't what we agreed to. So if, if, I'm, if I'm a Tesla owner and I'm midway through a lease deal, I just want to make sure that I'm not going to now be subjected to enormous queues and inconvenience so that people who 
didn't buy into the brand can benefit. Excellent. Any further comments to it? I think it's such a it's such a binary debate. Um, <laughs> you're, 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 it's going to be wrong whatever we say with this one. But uh, you know, my, my my pitch would be we've got to think about what what this is all about. It, it's it's not about you know having the best whatever in the street. It's about net zero and about you know getting low carbon technologies out there and and whatever's best for achieving that goal is the the, the route we should be taking in my view. Yeah, yeah totally agree. Totally agree. Right. Um, I want to discuss the whole area of slow charging cars on fast charger. Ironically, we seem to have chosen topics which all relate to charging, which probably says something about uh, the mindset of uh, electric vehicle drivers. <laughs> um, we've talked before on this podcast about the fact that oftentimes it's quicker to do a larger number of stops on a run, but only charge to say 60% before moving off rather than doing a few long charges and cranking up to 85 90%. But the one thing that this presupposes is that you have a suitable charge available when you arrive at a charge stop. So let's say, for example, um, you're someone like Jack who gets a, a fantastic fast car like a Taycan to, uh, to drive around with, and you stop at Ionity or one of the GridServe electric highway locations, you should get some pretty good charge speeds. But if you get there and the only charger that's available has got a BMW i3 sitting on it pulling 48 kilowatts or even worse a Mazda MX-30 pulling 34 kilowatts average that means you're sitting there waiting for a car to charge on a high-powered charger but it's only using a fraction of what it can uh, can actually take so you know there are two schools of thoughts on there are two schools of thought on this the first one is that you shouldn't be using a high-powered charger if your car can't pull the charge on that level which means that the MX-30 for example shouldn't be allowed on that charger. Also, slower charging cars such as the i3 and the early leafs would be limited to you know 50 kilowatt chargers, which isn't an issue because they're not losing anything by doing that as they wouldn't be able to charge above that level anyway. But the alternate school of thought on that is, well, so what? They got to the charger first, they should be able to use it. If the situation was reversed and they had to wait for the take to charge, then they'd have to charge. They'd have to wait. What? What's the issue? Why is that an issue? And of course, the problem with the first school of thought is, is that it means slower charging cars are limited into which charges they can use. But currently, with the number of 50 kilowatt chargers massively outnumbering the high power chargers, it shouldn't be an issue, at least not right now. The problem with the second school of thought is that you're not maximizing the potential for charging an area where there are already too many challenges, as we've already discussed. And don't get me started on plug-in hybrids, blocking charges, but pulling, you know, 3.6 kilowatts maximum because they've attached to the AC connector. Presumably, it wouldn't be difficult to inhibit slower charging cars from charging on high-power charges. But is this something we should do? I open it to the floor. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. And, and there's one additional piece of information you'd want before having a view on that is... is is there an is there a lower rate charger available at that location? Because mm -hmm. if there is, then it's almost it's almost um, you know as rude to to use a fast. They're mocking you at that stage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's almost like a deliberate act, isn't it? You know, um, whereas if it's the only unit available in that location, then are you really suggesting that they, these individuals be stranded? Because they haven't got a fast enough charge unit, so so it, it needs to be in context, you know. But the, the other thing is the, the design of charge stations, and I, again, it comes, it keeps coming up this this flexibility thing, you know. It, you know, if you have mul you know, multiple leads, because you, you can act perfectly honest, you can argue the same thing in terms of charge curve. You know, there there are times when the charge curve dropped off. Your your your, your car is only charging at you know maybe twenty kilowatts, and it maybe be doing hundred because it's the end, of, and it's still plugged in. Is that right? Or is that wrong? No. And, and and you know, some, in some ways, the design of the, the charge bays themselves are having more connectors and more electronics than you've actually got capacity is the way to do it, and and, and use diversity to and flexibility to manage the charging. So you can have maybe three or four cars charged in it or connected up at any particular point in time, but you manage that portfolio of charging as efficiently as possible. So there's a bit about charging infrastructure design in here and how it manages the opportunities of flexibility and diversity. Jack? Oh, 
it's a it's a really interesting question and I think really it speaks to one of the sort of it's a very good problem to have but one of the problems that we're facing at the moment is just how rapidly the technology is advancing and as, as a result how quickly technology starts to look outdated right so your VW and you've just spent years and years and billions of pounds on this modular electric vehicle architecture and you plan on building 90 different cars on top of it across your various brands and then Kia Hyundai come along and they're like oh our one charges twice as fast as yours and all of a sudden all of your hard work looks like it's kind of it just looks a bit outdated very quickly so my knee-jerk reaction to that question is I I don't think you can relegate people with slower charging cars to slower chargers only I think you know with chargers being a little bit more uh, few and far between than we'd hope at, the, at this stage, banning people from using certain ones because they didn't spend slightly more on a slightly nicer car mm. seems a bit mean. But equally, if you are in a Taycan or an Ionic 5 and you arrive at one of the few really, really quick chargers and you find a, you know, an, a, a Mazda, as you say, plugged in, um, planning on spending the day there, that would be intensely frustrating. So I think... You know, there's a whole thing here, isn't there, about sort of charger etiquette? It's a, it's a new world that we're just really beginning to contemplate. I think to Stuart's point, the ideal is that the the the, the bank of chargers there are designed cleverly enough to sort of distribute the power accordingly, um, and that you don't have to worry about it too much. But I think, I think my sh- my short answer is, I, I unfortunately I don't think you can. You can limit slower charging cars to slower chargers only, although I completely sympathize with the the hypothetical frustration of having a faster charging car and being made to wait. So it's a bit of a non-answer really, isn't it? But what it does, it brings up uh, another sort of related question to that. Uh, We've talked already about the grid serve electric highway um, ABB chargers, which allegedly can charge two vehicles from one unit at the same time. They haven't switched that functionality on at the moment, but they are intending on doing that. So should we, if we get to the situation where you pull up at one of these, you've got the Mazda already plugged in, and you come in and you plug in your Taycan, should the software then go, oh, well, hang on, I'm now going to drop the rate down even more on the Mazda and put more of it towards the Taycan because it can take more. So should, should the balancing be done at that level or should we say well no hang on the Mazda will take as much as it can and the Taycan's just got to take what's left Stuart yeah but it, it's about it's a kind of combination of human behavior isn't it and 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 uh and uh you know would have been like because I think what you're doing there is on one basis you're sharing the same capacity and one one basis you're doing on the basis of time you know, so it's you're, you're charging one item as fast as you can, and then you're disconnecting, and you're connecting another item as fast as you can. You're disconnecting it, so you're sharing on time. And the other model, you're sharing in parallel. Yeah, mm-hmm. now, but from a human behavior perspective, you know, knowing when that's going to be finished, time knowing you're not having to wait, is a big psychological plus. So, so I think you know, if you take the sort of psychology bit into it and remove the waiting from the process, I think that results in a much more um, pleasing experience for the EV owner in the sense you can go in, you can do something, you know, you can go to the costas, whatever you want to do, you know. Um, whereas the, the waiting is the thing that I think you've got to try and minimise because that's the bit that upsets people and results in, you know, charge rage and all the rest of it, yeah. Yeah, I totally I think, agree on that, yeah. yeah. I'm just mulling this over and figuring out what the, what the fairest way would be. I mean, I suppose you could just do the old 50-50 split, but maybe you could sort of, you could, if you had a charger that could sort of calculate the ratio, as it were, of what this car plugged into my left is capable of versus that one, mm-hmm. sort of distribute the power based on that. There's a million different ways that you could do it, isn't it? And it's, you know, because because we sit at chargers for longer than we sit at petrol stations, this is a brave new world of of uh, sort of social dilemmas that we've that we we're just contemplating for the very first time, and it's a it's a nice problem to have, I suppose. Uh, it is, and it does bring up something that you mentioned a few moments ago, which is the whole concept of charger etiquette. Like you know, it's things that maybe you wouldn't think about. For example, we'll go back to GridServe again. If you go up to um, the site at Rugby, they've got the twelve um, ABB units next to the 12 Tesla superchargers 
and the ABB units, six of them are dual CHAdeMO and CCS, and six of them are dual CCS. And that's fine, don't have a problem with that. But if you're a CCS, if you're driving a CCS car, should you be using a CCS charger that's on a dual CHAdeMO CCS unit if there are dual CCS units available? Because that means that someone who's coming in and needs a CHAdeMO may not be able to get on because even though CHAdeMO is available, you're blocking it because you're using the CCS connector at one that also has a CHAdeMO. And 99% of CCS drivers would not think of that at all until you raise the point. And then they go, oh, yeah, actually, I should be going straight to the ones that are dual CCS because, you know, I only need CCS and it frees up a CHAdeMO one for somebody else. It's all etiquette, isn't it? So it's an interesting one as well. And I'd suggest as well, at this, you know, this point, we're kind of beyond early uptake, but, you know, when we're still the minority you've got people that have bought an electric vehicle because they've actually consciously thought about it. When you get to the point where people are buying electric vehicles because they have to, is that willingness to abide by these etiquettes going to continue? So what do we need to do to kind of prepare for that world where you've got everybody, you know, engaged and otherwise um, looking to charge an electric vehicle? You know, because that would be quite a different world, I think, from where we have at the moment. It's all very tight around a charge point, generally speaking, in my experience. Um, that, that will change. It'll become more like trying to get a parking space at Tesco's. Yeah. That's a very good point. Um, I think there's a whole sort of separate podcast episode to be had on charger etiquette, how it is, Absolutely, how it yeah. is. So fabulous. Have we, um, have we done this topic to death, do you think? I think we've done it pretty thoroughly. I think that brings the roundtable discussion to an end. I'd like to thank Jack and Stuart for their time and input. I think it's been an interesting discussion, as these roundtables often are. So now it's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with you listeners. Jack, what was yours? Yes, well, I was at the Goodwood Festival Speed last week, the week before last, Mm -hmm. um, which is one of my favourite places in the world. I've been going since I was quite young, and it's extremely exciting to see the EV presence at the show swell year upon year and also just see interest for the EV presence at the show grow significantly because it really is a petrol heads world that place you've got you know old Senna Formula One cars knocking about and yet people are actually showing interest in electric supercars and sports cars and all sorts of other things so very cool but one thing that really caught my eye um, was one of several sort of urban quadricycle type things you know in the spirit of the Renault Twizy we've seen them before uh this one was called the Microlino uh, or Microlino Microlino I'm gonna go Microlino um a couple things that are interesting about it for one uh it's it's clearly inspired design wise by the BMW Isetta bubble car do you guys remember that thing Mm, yeah a really quirky little three-wheeled uh, petrol car originally. That's the one. Um, yeah. One of the interesting things about it was the entire front of the car was the door. So you open the door and the sort of steering wheel flies away from you and you climb out of the front. Not ideal for sort of tight parking spots. Um, <laughs> but it's a beautiful little retro electric city car. It's also, when I say micro, the, the logo is the same micro logo as the folding metal scooter I had when I was eight years old. It's that micro. Um, same company or at least same branding so that's presumably that means when you close the door of the micro you know it sort of bangs your ankle really hard as you're climbing in um but it was a great looking thing 120 miles of urban range seating for two spacious seating for two and it starts at around twelve thousand euro and they were telling me that they've had over ten thousand pre-orders for these things um and i was just absolutely charmed by it and when i see little electric quadricycles like that i think about small electric cars like the Honda E and the Mini Electric and they all of a sudden just seem a bit unnecessarily large and expensive. I think if you if you just need a hundred miles of range and to be able to pop around town, a little quadricycle like that just makes so much more sense. And I really hope that we see an uptake for that type of vehicle um, in the near future. Yeah, uh, it's a specific use case and I think there's... Um... You know, there's the need to have something that that can fill that specific use case that's not big and expensive and, and unwieldy. So excellent. Thank you for that. Stuart, do you have anything? 
no, I, well, I have actually, yeah, but I, and I, I just think following on from that, one of the, one of the ones I found quite nice was the, there's a company, Arkimoto, across in the States, which is a really interesting product, kind of along that sort of lines. But um, the, the, the point I was going to make, I, I thought I'd just kind of stick to the same theme. I've been, talk, I've been talking about flexibility up here a bit, but one of the things I think is cool is that, that you know, the networks that we're not, we're not just targeting flexibility in the EV world. Um, one of the things we've got, the reason it's kind of relevant is we've just put out 37 zones just this week, actually. We're, we're, we're looking for other demand, other organizations that can reduce their demand on the network to create capacity for electric vehicle charging or other new low carbon technologies. So we're, we're, we're going out and we're asking, you know, whether there's you no know, local factories, business, heating systems, whatever it is, and we're saying if you turn your demand down at these times, we will pay you money, and that 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 reduction in demand frees up the capacity for electric vehicle charging and, and other new demands coming into the system. So, I think it's cool because it's kind of it's kind of going beyond the immediate problem, which is how do you get that charger connected, and it's thinking about you know how do you solve this problem more broadly across the network. And um, it's a bit industry geeky, but uh, I think it's cool. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and then that starts to then go into uh, things like time of day tariffs for uh, home users where they, you know, sort of shift their usage to a time where the electricity is a little bit cheap to try and reduce the load on the Absolutely. Yeah, all links into the very summer thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, my cool thing relates to Formula E. Hopefully, as fans of electric cars, you've all been watching the Formula E Championship as it's progressed from the early days of, you know, two cars with a pit stop to change in the middle right up to the current racing with all the fan boosts and the activation zones and the better performing cars. Now, one thing that's built into the Formula E ethos is safety from the design of the cars, the design of the tracks, the emergency processes for getting a driver out of a car with a a battery short circuit, right down to the safety car itself. Formula E have produced a video showing some of the different aspects of the driver, the track and the vehicle safety. And it's it's a fascinating 15 minute look at, at how things are designed to minimize risk and maximize the safety to everybody at the circuit plus you get a look inside that custom designed mini safety car it's a great little video uh the link is in the show notes so if you've got 15 minutes have a quick look at that and that's the show for today hope you enjoyed listening to it thanks again to my guests Stuart and jack for their time and input if you want to contact me i can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com i'm also on twitter at musingsev If you want to support the podcast and the newsletter, please consider contributing to become an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? Well, if you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. It takes Apple Pay too. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So you've got an electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Library. Please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review, preferably five stars, as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and you're still listening, thank you. Much appreciated. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingsEV with the words 100 episodes. Hashtag if you know you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. From a young age he's been a big fan of Jaffa cakes. Always takes them everywhere. But don't try and get him to give you one. They're his. Or they were until his wife told him he'd be taking their daughter to ballet every week for a year unless he changed his tune and his daughter will only go to ballet if whoever takes her is wearing a pink tutu. He sort of went, yeah, we should show them out, but his fists were clenched when he said it. I'm Gary, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.